You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. We are letting you out. Kind of probation. Your aunt and I hope that you can conduct yourself normally. What did you do in the clinic those three years? Did it cure you? Yes. Now I'm completely mad. Mais l'assassin est un type très violent. Il lui a fait éclater le crâne. Il a And I'll do anything I can not to have you squander my sister's money. Leave your cousins alone, all three of them, please. Il y en a un autre. Il mourra complètement. Pour la dernière fois. Viens avec moi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to take along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, that you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We are tackling some some classic fuck them kids cinema. So please join the sleaze. It's going to be a good time. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing. We are in our fifth year of bonus episodes. There's like a hundred plus as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films. Uh, so if you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash these podcast. And speaking of which we did have quite a few people make the jump this week. So let's give them their shout outs here. We had Victoria, uh, we had Charles Burns, we had Amanda Krupp, we had Michael Burke, uh, Billy Jackson, uh, Flower, uh, Emerica, oh God, you guys are killing me, Emica <laughs> Chiclair, Johnny Tiberio, um, Renier Van Der Zoo, <laughs> that was butchered, you guys can all yell at me later, uh, Robert <laughs> Behrens, Sam Weinberg, uh, Heath Jarvis, Miles Ramsdell Ray, and Levy weeb uh so thanks so much to all of you folks hope you are enjoying those bonus episodes we appreciate the support the other plug for the week as always is uh apple podcast if you guys are listening on apple Podcasts, and i see the stats uh, i see you right now listening on apple Podcasts. scroll down to the very bottom and give us a good old rating and review down there helps us climb the ranks over at itunes and find new listeners and the very last plug as always is uh, merch. If you guys like the poster art that local based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that basically put on anything you can think of. And we got some freaks out there. So people have bought some pens, some pillows, some posters, hoodies, shirts, anything you can think of. That link is in the description as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com. And that's the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis. And joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time uh, you folks over on the main feed would have heard from us. And uh, we would have been talking with special guest horror author Emma Burquist, where uh, we went uh, teenage monster movie mode. We talked about uh, Ginger Snaps from the year 2000 by John Fawcett. Awesome movie. Uh, awesome little uh werewolf toronto movie that was uh <laughs> uh very gruesome and uh very sad in terms of the yeah. uh character work and the idea as has a little bit of that cronenberg uh body horror uh as sort of puberty and sexual awakening and kind of mixing all those things together we had a lot of fun talking about that with Emma. 
cinema and she paired it with a film that we had never heard of called Waxwork from 1988, which was a film directed by uh, the son of Andy Coates and uh, has the premise. It's not a particularly skilled in terms of how it was directed, but it has the <laughs> premise of what if a wax museum was filled with historical characters and movie monsters from uh, decades of history and what if they all kind of hung out in one place and killed teenagers and ate their souls and stuff. So if yeah. you're interested in all in seeing the the kid from Gremlins uh, be in the same scene as Rosemary's baby uh, getting shotgunned in the face, that's the movie <laughs> you're looking for. Yeah, and he wrote it in like a three-day binger where he was just partying the entire time. So uh, Yes, it you know, feels it's, like it's, that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Uh, so that was, that was a lot of fun and also featured a werewolf. So there was a neat little, uh, bridge there. Yeah, brushed his and shoulders then, um, off. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and then, uh, last week over on the, uh, uh, Patreon feed for the listeners over there, we had your guys's patron voted episode, which I'm sure most of you know by now, but the patrons do vote on an episode, a double feature that we do once every two months. And you guys voted for, uh, Miller's Crossing 1990. Joel and Ethan Cohen. I'm sure everyone's familiar with that one. And uh, but uh, Nick Ferguson, our patron, had a really cool pairing with it. Devil in a Blue Dress from 1995, directed by Carl Franklin, starring Denzel Washington. Two very cool, stylish period noir films that, uh, you know, featured some very crafty hustlers. Uh, and were really awesome recreations of their uh, place and setting. Miller's Crossing is not really defined, but um, Devil in a Blue Dress, the recreation of South Central L.A., and that is just amazing to look at. Both of them yeah. are amazing to look at. So we had a lot of fun talking about those last week over on, again, patreon.com slash Podcast. if that uh, episode interests you at all. But moving on to this week, we have a very special guest joining us. He is uh, one of the uh, few actually uh, good New York film critics. You <laughs> might have read him in such publications as Film Comment, Sight and Sound, Art Forum, Village Voice. For me personally, his writing at Reverse Shot, I think, was some of the writing back in the 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 long away days of 2014, 2015 film Twitter era that got me seriously into watching and thinking about movies. And he also now has a really excellent sub stack you all can subscribe to called Employee Picks and that is nick pinkerton nick how you doing i'm doing well i like the uh, i like the phrase one of the few good new york critics the implication <laughs> being that other cities are just overflowing with uh, superlative film critics of course they are <laughs> you know very this. thin you know on this. the line here <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nick, thanks so much for for joining us here. And as it goes, we have the guests bring on their uh, double features with them. So what two films have you brought with you this week and why did you pair them together? Well, I'll be frank. It was like a very pragmatic thing. The two films are Alain Corneau's 1976 Police Python 357 and uh the Bell from Hell, or La Campana del Infierno, uh, the second and final feature film uh, of director Claudio Guerin, sometimes billed as Claudio Guerin Hill, who died on the final day of the shoot under somewhat controversial circumstances. Mm. And uh, the film was then brought into harbor by Juan Antonio Bardem. In both cases, these are films that in some of my activity as an occasional hobbyist programmer uh, that I've been looking at, 
Police Python 357 was the first film in a now monthly ongoing screening series that the American cinematographer Sean Price Williams and myself have uh, been entrusted with programming at the Roxy Cinema Tribeca, uh, a blindfolded screening series, meaning that nobody knows what they're getting until they're in their seats. Amazing. Uh, and, cool. and um, A Bell from Hell, I've been putting together a program of Spanish fantasy horror films, so-called fanta-terror films, uh, that will eventually be running at Metrograph, I think, in the month of June. So, you know, there was a sort of purely convenience-based pairing, but in getting ready to come on and blabber about them, I found that they did have a certain dialogue with one another, uh, and the the uniting factor is both can, I think, be related to uh, what Colin McCabe writing about uh, Jean-Pierre Melville called cinema of process, uh, which mm -hmm. is to say both are occasionally given to these long digressive sequences that involve us intensely in some kind of intricate detail work, uh, the sort of laying out of a plan uh, that is not, in some cases, really known to us. Uh, you know, we, 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 we see uh, both protagonists becoming like very involved in uh, some kind of, some kind of, uh, sorry, I'm, uh, you, I, I know, I know what you're getting at. Like, there's, there's this thing where we learn a lot of what the characters are doing on a psychological basis by just watching them in action. There's lots of sequences where there's like not dramatic music playing, and we just kind of watch them do something, and it kind of piques your curiosity as you watch them. And you yeah, know, over precise. the course of the films, information is developed and stuff. But there, there is a cool kind of mundane element to you just sit there and you watch these people at work in a procedural way. Yeah, yeah. The, the, this this very this very uh, documentary impulse almost, and then you know the Melville connection I think is you know rather more obvious in the case of Police Python three fifty seven. Of course, it's sort of policier, <laughs> uh, and it's you know right there in the opening sequence where you have a series of close ups of this sort of workbench setup that the protagonist Yves Montand's Inspector Faroe has in his uh, bedroom where he's you know, greasing the cylinders on his 357 Magnum, scoring the tips of uh, jacket casings on bullets to make them into dum-dum rounds. Uh, and this is you know, how you enter the world of the film. In the case of uh, A Bell from Hell, uh, the protagonist, the French actor Renaud Verlet playing Juan, um, probably his most notable appearance outside of genre fair being a supporting role in Visconti's The Damned. Anyway, this young man who's recently been released from a psychiatric clinic comes back to his family home, to uh, his hometown and extended family, and in this uh, very elaborate practical joker with a taste for the <laughs> macabre and we see the, the the introductory scene of the character. He's making a plaster mask of his own face, 
and the utility of this mask does not become clear uh, until it's very very patient with it. <laughs> yeah. And and moreover, moreover, there is a kind of extended set piece that takes up most of the latter half of the film involving him inviting his aunt and three cousins over for some kind of meeting involving his uh, inheritance um, and his relationship to the family, shall we say. And before this meeting, we see him going all throughout the house, uh, putting these little caches of tape and rope around. And it's not entirely clear what the uh, use of these items will be, though we've seen sufficient of this character up to this point to know it's probably something rather sinister. Um, (laughs) So, you know, again, this was not a particularly thought through pairing, but to my pleasant surprise, uh, there are some synchronicities, I think, here uh, in that, again, there is these sort of cinema process elements at work in both films. Absolutely. Yeah, I I would say that, you know, these are two very underseen sort of foreign genre exercises that definitely have this really cool sort of detailed procedural element, but to two very different uh, uh, end goals of styles. You have one that's more of a gothic Euro horror revenge kind of story, and the other is, you know, a a noir story that's been updated for a more menacing kind of paranoid 70s sort of crime era. And it's also cool because this was, you know, the 70s was a really cool transition period between, you know, where genre cinema was in the late 60s and kind of where it was eventually going to be heading because some of these do get to some pretty uh, gruesome places. But I'm excited to jump into it here. So let's open up with uh, Police Python 357. Right, we are talking Police Python 357, also known as, a, a little bit more pragmatically, The Case Against Faroe. <laughs> uh, it is the 1976 uh, French crime thriller film written and directed, as Nick mentioned, by one Alain Corneau. Uh, Jamie and I are going to get to test our uh, French-Canadian uh, memory a little <laughs> bit this week with some of the pronunciations. Um, this film bad. is... It's going to be bad. Uh, it is named after, uh, obviously, the very dirty, hurricane, d- dirty hairy American-style <laughs> Colt Python Magnum caliber revolver that the main character, Inspector Faroe, uses here. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised watching it because I, I didn't realize it until about halfway through the movie. Uh, this is like a, a loose remake or adaptation of Kenneth Fearing's The Big Clock, uh, oh, wait, which was something I didn't know going into it, which I've seen. And it's a really great film. Awesome. Um, in, in 1948, yet. I mean, there's been a couple different adaptations, but the the one from 1948 by John Farrow is the one that I've seen. And it's this very mm-hmm. fun little cat and mouse murder mystery noir, lots of dramatic irony to it, imposing office architecture. And obviously you have God Charles Lawton uh, in that film playing the boss character. And that one is centered more in um, a sort of uh, uh, 
publication um, uh, network, which is sort of adapted from the original novel. So this this actually moves the setting. The original novel is about an editor-in-chief of a publication who is framed by his boss for killing his mistress um, and uh, has to both head the investigation essentially for himself while actually not solving the case uh, because that would then reveal that you know, he was behind it, even though he knows that he wasn't revealing all kinds of kind of, you know, sexual perversity and con- corruption and transactional business relationships that become more personal, deadly ones. It's got a little bit of the Hitchcockian suspense elements, but it's also got, you know, some of the ideas, uh, especially from the novel of, you know, mass communication companies and how they can be used to web you know, weaponized to manipulate images of of the people who control them and have money. And uh, it was very interesting because it was about halfway through the movie when I realized this is the same plot as that story. And then I went and looked it up. I was like, okay, so this is the same thing, except for, you know, this one has replicated that plot, but with more of a focus on this kind of, you know, sort of romantic void that these hard men are trying to fill. This spends more time on the relationship um, that the two men have with the the woman who uh, then dies and then who's kind of sparks the, the thriller elements of the film that, you know, some of the other films didn't quite have as much. Um, and it updates the mass communication uh, elements for more of this systemic police bureaucracy aspect and right. these kind of like cold-hearted, violent pragmatism of, of, of these cops. And, and also, you know, while doing some of the cat and mouse elements, does them with two very specific actors I had a great time uh, seeing, which is uh, Yves Montan, who is from Wages of Fear and State of Siege, and Francois Perrier, who's from Le Samurai and Knights of of Kiberia. And uh, both... are in Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Circle Rouge, which is very funny that, you know, he just was literally just like, yeah, so here's actors who have been regulars in Jean-Pierre Melville films. Uh, let's put them both in this very specific uh, story <laughs> and, you know, update it in, in this way and, you know, take some in for inspiration from the way that he shot crime cinema. Yeah, in fact, the uh, Montan connection to Corneau came by way of Costa Gavras because Corneau had worked through the late 60s and early 70s principally as an assistant director, and he'd been on a couple of films with Costa Gavras and uh, met Montand, uh through those films. Cool. And yeah, you also have uh, Simon Signoret, uh, Montand's longtime partner, uh, as the wife of his higher up at the Orlean uh, Police Department and Stefania. Yeah, she's fantastic in uh, Army of Shadows. Yeah, um, who had uh, been that same year seen in uh, Novocento, 1900, the Bertolucci film, and also in uh, Chabrol's Les Magiciens. So yeah, it's a, a nicely stacked little cast. Yeah, a bunch of recognizable uh, French actors here for sure, and um, I, yeah, this was this was a really interesting one because it for for me I found myself in the kind of early goings um, being surprised at kind of how much. Uh, time it was taking on the elements that you were kind of referring to. Some of it was obviously really intriguing and engrossing stuff, like when it, you know, just drops you into, you know, this sort of uh, this cop and the pro his sort of procedural elements that you see him do, like, as you were mentioning in the opening, how, you know, he's you we're introduced to him literally just like actually putting his his weaponry together and getting ready. And he almost lives in this uh, hilariously stripped down like Brissonian. Uh, uh, it's a very like Melvillian uh, yes. <laughs> kind of kind of environment that uh, that he 
that he uh, had made for himself. I mean, I I first saw the movie at, in 2008 at Film Forum, which I think is the last time that it was projected in New York City. And, you know, when we were sort of picking a first movie uh, for our series, um, I brought it up and... You know, the series is very idiotically called City Dudes, which is a like funny <laughs> band name that I made up 15 years ago and which has like amused me ever since. And I uh, I mentioned the title to Sean. And he's like, you know what? I was just thinking about Eat Montag. He's the ultimate city dude. <laughs> <laughs> As to what that means, I have no idea. Um, but I, you know, seen it now 13 years ago. And I remember liking it a great deal at the time, liking it so much, in fact, that my girlfriend at the time bought me a Spanish poster for the movie off of eBay and had it framed for me. Awesome. So I've been walking past this poster for 13 odd years now. Uh, then when it sort of came time to show uh, and we we're sort of preparing introductory comments, like, you know what? I don't really fucking remember very much that happens in this movie. Uh <laughs> And as you know, as happens with so many films, like they just get boiled down to a you know a couple of idiosyncrasies or grace notes uh, or kind of standout scenes. And for me, it was like, you know, in my memory, this is a movie about Yves Montand just sitting at a workbench and uh, like around <laughs> with things. And I'm certain there are other you know other things that occur in the course of the film, but that's kind of what's left to me. And that like sort of austerity i think is what really got the hooks in me uh and you know also just the sort of gravitas of montand who not only is uh sporting harry callahan's sidearm but is wearing the same like herringbone tweed blazer that eastwood yeah. wears uh <laughs> in the dirty harry films I also love when he goes out at night and he gets the the leather jacket and the leather gloves and the jeans and everything and and his power stance when he's about to quick draw out of out of his uh, revolver. It's it, it's it's really fantastic like physical performance that he gives and it reminded me too because we were just kind of talking about it. But I I like when cop movies like this just have a more like average looking old man <laughs> as your character. Yeah, it makes the field kind of wearier to me. It was a quality we just talked about that we really enjoyed about the Yakuza, which we covered pretty recently on, on this show. And not to say that Robert Mitchum isn't a striking looking person or anything, but having Robert Mitchum at that age in like a role <laughs> that probably would go to, you know, a more, you know, uh, you know, a, a younger guy who could do more physically. There was yeah. something so interesting about watching him at that stage in his life, you know, dual wield, uh, shotguns and things like that um and there's a well, similar I mean, quality to this that you know both of these guys are much older uh you know old guard cops well it's also like uh i think it makes montan's performance particularly touching as he is introduced very much as a man who is past the age of expectation who yes. is you know, completely wedded to his job and then had this you know strange meet cute with the uh, Sandrelli character, Sylvia, where she snaps a photo of him uh, in the middle of busting some crooks who are after hours church, <laughs> uh, and then uses the image uh, in a vitrine display in a uh, like a shop window. But there are like some very, very 
touching little pieces of finesse in the Montan performance. This, you know, this middle-aged fellow who seems to have very much been out of the game with regards to love for like quite a while and is sort of bushwhacked by this unexpected uh, relationship coming into his life. I particularly uh, am moved by the moment when he sets up a rendezvous with uh, Sandrelli's character at the Orlean uh, train station. And there's a shot of him walking in where there's this sort of anxious, worried, uh, but also like boyish anticipation that flashes across his face, uh, the desire to see this woman again, the fear that she will not be there. Um, and that carries over, you know, after Sandrelli's character is dispatched about a half an hour in, where, you know, it's not merely a mission of vengeance or a man trying to clear his good name, but also somebody who is really going through it um, is mm-hmm. in the claws of a deep and inconsolable grief. And, you know, returning to this sort of process-oriented aspects of the film, I think you really see this in a scene where uh, Montan has the idea that, uh, you know, his departed girlfriend uh, was very fond of keeping very well-concealed secrets. He finds a little picture uh, that she had nestled in a watch that she gave to him. So he breaks into her apartment and just absolutely, like, tears the place to pieces. Crazy <laughs> yeah. You know, shredding the mattress, peeling off wainscoting, uh, just like going buck wild and finding all of these like, you know, strange little mementos uh, squirreled away. And mm-hmm. yeah, it does, you know, it owes something to that, you know, Melvillian cinema process, but it's also like a really kind of wrenching scene of this, you know, very broken guy who is trying to find, you know, little keepsakes, little pieces yeah. of his, you know, missing beloved. Um, and I, I don't, you know, granted it's been some time, but I can remember a few sequences in Melville where the process is sort of married to emotion in that way. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I think you're spot on. That that scene really stands out because, um, you know, the way that Montan plays his character is there is this, especially when you watch him in action and his physicality, there's something very calm and kind of methodical about watching him at work and watching him do something like ripping the carpet out of her flat or stabbing the bed open, tearing the walls off. And uh, after the fact, his partner is really telling scene where his partner says, you know, someone broke into the into the flat last night, came from the ceiling, and you, he said, you got to check it out. Like, you'll see it's a mess. Like, it's very clearly yeah. the work of a madman, the work of yeah. an insane murderer. <laughs> and it's so interesting because, you know, it's – it's true if you look at it, like it looks like it was a very hysterical work of someone in pain and who was, you know, trying to express that in a way. But the actual process of watching it again, it's very mundane. It's very methodically done. And there's there is a cool, I think, merging of those two things happening here. One of my personal favorites is is early on when 
you know, we, we watch him and we, we get to know him pretty early on as a character who, you know, he does nothing but the job. And that's why he's out at night after hours capturing criminals. And it's become a kind of problem that he's like an old man still behaving like, you know, like a like a young uh, rookie out and about. And people are always like, you got to be careful because, you know, eventually yeah. someone's going to see what you do and you're not going to have a partner there with you and you're going to get into trouble. I think his partner even says, like, you know, you once again arrested two men alone, like they outnumber you in terms of testimony. So you got to like, you know, you got to, you know, chill out a little bit. And then as this meet cute happens with Sylvia and he starts getting romantically involved with her, he does kind of see an escape for his time. And one of my favorite expressions of that is this really awesome target practice sequence that he does where he's quick drawing and you know he's clearly consumed by the work and he has a great power stance when he's firing his gun and you know he's he's putting in in the work you can tell that this is what his his you know his passion is this sort of again this pragmatic mundane process of how he can achieve this goal and then it cuts to him driving around france in this more kind of touristy you know kind of beautiful going around the locales and he spots her on the street and he drives he, he literally drives around the block two or three times just to catch a glimpse of her over and over again which then transitions into scenes of them going on dates and you know having steamy romantic sex in the french countryside in his car and which also leads to her um going out with his gun and kind of getting in trouble with like shooting a farmer a on the land and then that <laughs> yeah. later on gets in it gets him into some trouble because he's investigating the case and he knows that he was actually the one in the field with her at the time when they start to question uh, the the farmer that comes in for information. Um, so that was something I like too, that his the the uh, the power that he has as a cop does help him along the way with with hiding the things he needs to hide throughout the case. But at the same time, it keeps getting him into trouble as well. Um, another, I mean, I, no, gonna, I mean, one of the things that uh, that I've really enjoy is the degree to which in a not too heavy handed way we are made aware of the fact that his diehard professionalism and obsession with his work makes him not a terribly great partner and how sort of certain reflexes uh, or like the muscle memory of the job kind of creeps into his relationship. One of the scenes Mm -hmm. that uh, comes to mind is he's in a argument with uh, Sandrelli in a public park. And I forget precisely what the exchange is, but she says something to him that he takes a miss. And when he wheels around to face her, he does it in exactly the same kind of cat-like you know, firing range power stance uh, that yeah. we've seen before. Similarly, yeah. on their like last night together, uh, he petitions to uh, have them live together and is turned down and he gives her this brisk slap across the face, which is just like a total, you know, interrogation room slap. And yeah. that then, I think, heavily colors the grief that follows it's like this is the last time that he saw this woman alive and he slapped her across the face um and how much deeper is that you know sense of sense of regret uh sense of impotence in the face of death 
with you know that memory laying over things. Yeah, and I, I really like how that gesture kind of mirrors something that she tells to him and, you know, extends to the kind of larger story at play where, you know, she mentions to him, you know, I'm fucking sick of cops, <laughs> you know, and like that moment is obviously a very striking um, moment. And then it also applies to for anyone who hasn't obviously uh, seen it or, you know, isn't familiar with the big clock, which is, you know, the the story of, you know, this sort of uh character falls in love with the mistress of his boss. So in this case, the other character is uh, Francois Perrier char- character, the commissioner Genet. And Genet is uh, having uh, a affair with Sylvia, and Sylvia now, now having kind of become romantically involved with Faroe, is uh, thinking about leaving him, but you know we—he doesn't know when she says that she's all she's already having an affair with another cop who is also literally his immediate superior, who he answers to, yeah. and these two men uh, don't. You know, they're both having a completely separate relationship and it kind of gets the the wires get crossed. Um, and we actually get some great like POV images of, you know, when that slap happens, it actually uh, there's there's this great shot from like above where Ganey, if he looked down, he could see that mm-hmm. altercation taking place. But then he goes uh, she goes back up and she's writing this note to leave him. And this note to leave him uh, is very uh, upsetting to him, but in a really intriguing way that it's written that I actually really liked, which is that he doesn't show that he's upset about it. <laughs> he he basically is just like, OK, you want to leave me? OK, you want to go have fuck another guy? OK, you want me to pay for an apartment for you two to go and do that? OK, that's fine. You know, whatever. I'm chill. I just want whatever's best for you. But she knows that that's not how he's feeling because she knows that cops are, in her experience, very bad at actually expressing themselves when it's not through, uh, you know, as we see through both of these characters, through these more sort of physical procedural oriented elements. And she basically goads him into actually expressing his real feelings and baits him uh, and baits him. Which he expresses by stoving in her skull with an ashtray. Yes, which, by the way, another connection between these two films. There's two deaths by, or I guess the other one's not a death, it's a a knockout. But regardless, two women in these films have their heads beaten with ashtrays. And yes, this is a really, really horrifying um, Well, in the the day, that's just what I look for in cinema. (laughs) Seeing That's the double bill. Ashtrays. <laughs> uh, and it's a very elaborate workaround for my my dark fetish for ashtray play. Oh no. You heard it here first, folks. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's a really, you know, um, uh, visceral moment. And the moment where the film really does kind of change gears, all of a sudden, a lot of the kind of cross-cutting between the characters that we've seen, where you have Genet with his uh, disabled wife and what, what his kind of day-to-day life looks like. And you have um, uh, Faroe and what his day-to-day looks like and how Sylvia has, you know, sort of uh, changed what both of them look like in ways that they feel is positive. And then all of a sudden that cross-cutting becomes incredibly dark and ominous because it's no longer this thing where both of these people, you know, there's a romantic entangleship is kind of what you think that cross-cutting is. And then instead it's more, it becomes these really dark cat and mouse kind of thriller sequencing that you, you know, you might actually expect of, of this story. Um, you know, I, I think about like when Ganey is is deciding that he's going to leave and he goes to his car and Faroe then at the same time <laughs> that 
Faro is entering, uh, you know, the the complex looking for her, drunk. And, you know, he just, as he's opening the elevator, Gane has just turned the lights off and is just about to head down. And you can actually still hear his sharp footsteps as the elevator doors open up and he's about to go into her apartment and everything like that. And then when Gane is down below and he's looking up at the apartment, he can see the lights being turned on. And we even get this very rear window style telephone uh, exchange between the two where Gane goes to the payphone below and calls her apartment and they just each heavily breathe into the phone knowing of each other's <laughs> presence. Um, like this stuff is all really quiet and really tense and really well done. I should say also the cross cutting in this sequence is I think indicative of a kind of particular morbid comic sensibility that Corneau has where you're moving back and forth between you know, the somewhat awful scene of a woman being beaten to death. And then you're going to Faro who, after the argument, goes on like a Pernod bender and <laughs> lets a bunch of pigs out for yeah, free. yeah, this is like, <laughs> like just like drunk act, like goofy stuff where uh, Monton, yeah, like uh, goes and lets a bunch of pigs out of a truck uh, onto the street. This you know sort of strangely liberational uh, gesture, and then yeah. on his way back to Sylvia's apartment. Uh, sort of takes several trash bins, like their uh, track and field hurdles, uh, and this sort of close proximity of the comic and the awful. I think it's something like very much present in what I believe is probably the best known Corneau film today, uh, outside of France, Siri Noir from 1979. Uh, which is also a movie that is sort of heavily inflected by American genre, uh, hard-boiled literature, particularly being based as it is on a novel by Jim Thompson. Uh, but I think you really get the rather dark sense of humor that Corneau has in this this particular cross-cutting exercise. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... Um for for me when the film changed gears here was when i you know it, it really kind of peaked up um for me and the procedural elements st started to take on what you were talking about that more emotional quality to it and even when some of the things that they were doing were kind of physically absurd in in certain moments like this does end on an insanely ridiculous and destructive <laughs> finale which i wasn't oh, expecting uh, because of the you know how patient it is to finally let that out um but you know th this stuff in particular and i mean like some of the more perverse elements to it are kind of funny one of my favorite elements was how when gane you know he's killed his mistress and he's been weirdly kind of open with his his wife um who is in a wheelchair and when he comes home you know she's like she's actually quite front quite you know upfront about confronting him about the you know the, the the girls that he sleeps around with and i think she even mentions like his secretary and he was just like i only had her once Okay, <laughs> like what? You know, whatever. It was done, one and done. That was it. He's a true um, rider, rider die. I gotta say, she is true rider die. Because when he, this is what I'm saying. When he comes home, and there's this great wide shot of him returning home, and his wife is is in bed in the sort of like dark blue room, and the orange light of the hall is kind of uh, sleeking in from his trench coat and hat as he kind of slinks into the room and everything like that. And what I wasn't expecting was for you know I, I expected you know, uh, the element to be that Faroe was going to be doing what he's doing.
thing, which is uh, the cops are going to be seeking a murderer. And he happened to be in a relationship with the girl that was murdered and last seen slapping her publicly in a park mm-hmm. um, and leaving all kinds of evidence like his boot prints and everything at the scene. So he has his own thing that he has to deal with. He has to investigate himself. Uh, but not actually let anyone know that, you know, he's the one that they're all looking for. And I almost expected something similar that uh, Gane was going to have to hide this from his wife. No, immediately he goes, yeah, so the girl that you were joking about me sleeping with, she's dead. Um, and uh, I hit her and I don't know what got into me. And her immediate response was, you heard that phrase so many times and you've never tried to understand it. And she's and but immediately she's like, I am, you know, uh, she, she's right there with him. You know, yeah, no she's one saw you like, do it, so why admit? <laughs> yeah. You know, either you were seen and it's all over for you or you weren't. There's no point in admitting it right now. Let's just, you know, wait and see where things kind of fall where they're going to fall. Yeah. And I, I would be remiss not to mention in talking about the uh, film's peculiar sense of humor, one of the one of my favorite bits, uh, which comes up as Faroe is having to essentially uh, investigate himself while keeping his colleagues oblivious to the fact that this is what he's doing. Uh, and at one point, he takes uh, Sylvia on a date to the Musée Gustave Moreau in Paris, uh, which is one of my favorite weird little museums, Moreau's former home, which is now just a shrine to uh, his artistic output. And uh, a report comes in from like one of the museum docents, I think, uh, of having cited them together there. And I forget precisely the exchange, but one of his colleagues is like, oh, it's a strange place to, uh, you know, to go on a date. And uh, Faroe can't help himself and just uh, like erupts. Maybe he just has good taste. yeah there's a whole bunch of great elements like that one of my favorites is the the boot print that they find because they they go uh his partner goes it's such a weird coincidence that uh, me and faro just bought these same boots like together at the same time because we thought these looked awesome and um yeah, it's, it's like they're literally will, wearing what they think the killer was wearing. And then he immediately goes home and he's like burning his shoes and he's burning his glove. There's actually a part too where he has to sit on his glove to avoid yeah. his partner seeing it in the car. There's a lot of really, again, this is where the procedural stuff really starts lending itself well to the actual tension and desperation of the text of the film. Yeah, Because he has he, to all do of these details parts. are building up and he has to constantly be in a state of desperate improvisation yeah. all the time throughout the film like constantly reacting to someone else found out something that he was doing in this one time that he wasn't really thinking uh, that he was just kind of going with the flow with this romantic, you know, situation that he was in. And all of a sudden, all of those details matter more than any situation he's ever been in. Yeah. One of the, my favorite moments is when they go to the market or the, uh, the grocery store and that one guy ends up following him in between the two trucks. So he hits him and knocks him out. And, you know, he's going there uh, at first, I believe, for just um, just some some groceries and things. And then once he's followed and knocks that guy out, the cops end up showing up and he thinks that that's for like he has this image of him opening the front door and all these police cars (laughs) coming towards him. And he's just like, oh, my God, this is it. Like, I've been caught. I've been had. And it just turns out to be another procedural thing where he gets to be a cop again, investigate the scene. And now they're looking for you know, a, a guy that, or eventually they find the guy that was knocked out and then they're trying to find who knocked him out. And, it, you know, it just becomes this insanely crazy procedural uh, thing yeah, that, that I love. 
that that sequence the, is one really of, one fantastic. Of sublime one of two sublime supermarket uh, parking lot scenes in the film. Uh, it yes. should be added. <laughs> the other being, of course, the climactic gun battle in a Carrefour parking lot, uh, yeah. where Pharaoh, having successfully evaded identification by uh, throwing a bottle of acid in his own face. Uh, <laughs> not to be recognized by, uh, by any of the witnesses who have uh, come out of the woodwork, uh, drives in like a bat out of hell to the standoff between uh, three uh, blue jumpsuited hoodlums who have been holding up an armored car uh, in a, uh, in a uh, parking lot and rams his Peugeot into the armored car, squashing one of the, uh, <laughs> one of the, uh, bandits and then rolls out and with some sort of fantastic, uh, he does fantastic, like 15 rolls. Yeah. <laughs> he's in Tokyo drifter. No, 15 evasive rules. <laughs> exactly. And it, I mean, yeah. it is very much out of the like, uh, dirty, hairy playbook where, <laughs> Uh, and Dave Kerr, I think, uh, when writing about Sudden Impact, uh, touched on this, you know, that uh, it's always the Apollinian Harry versus the, like, Dionysian uh, thugs, the, you know, these guys with grease guns who are just spraying bullets everywhere, yeah. but without, uh, without careful intent. And with two shells and a uh, Peugeot ram, uh, Faro manages to take these three guys out as they're like expending clip after clip after clip. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, that that stuff is is really you know crazy that that is kind of like the destructive finale because he has gone back to what he you know what he does, which is which is the work at that point. But it's so crazy how long and how much time it takes for him to get back to that place just to get out of the specifics of the situation that he's in. Because the the one sequence that Jamie was talking about at the at the first grocery store, one of my favorite elements of that is that he um, he goes in he's just buying some stuff he sees a guy who who is a witness from a previous thing who recognizes him as the guy and my favorite element of this is he completely plays a cool that that guy immediately drops groceries and goes straight to the phone and you just watch him observe him do that in action and he knows that he's calling the cops on him and he doesn't you know run, run him down or even tail him what he does is he just very quietly checks out and he pretends that he hasn't noticed and that he's just going on with his day and actually basically baits the guy into leading him. So to actually following him out there. And then he, in one fell karate chop, just (laughs) and he does it just in time without even breaking a sweat, essentially. And then unceremoniously rolls him underneath a truck. Yes. Lest lest we forget. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it, it, and this and is a police so, officer. <laughs> it's just so awesome because we are set in the motion of the basic sort of antagonistic relationship of that he is having with the rest of his department, which is that every bit of circumstantial evidence that they are going to find is going to point to him because he was in the most public relationship with her leading up to her death. And then he has to find ways to sidestep it in the immediate moment, thrillingly. Um, and again, in these improvised ways, you know, which is, I think, you know, while pursuing obviously his own investigation of this other man, which he eventually does find out to be Ganae. But I don't, I, I don't know about you, Jamie. I was quite surprised at how fast 
the Gane reveal happens for both characters and then how and then fast the it was over. I kind of <laughs> yeah. loved I kind of loved that because I, I expected that, you know, it kind of left room for this final half hour mm-hmm. to be really a lot darker and lonelier and sadder than I expected because I, I honestly expected more of a thrilling these two guys are going to chase each other down and try to fuck with each other. Yeah, like but a confrontation. Gane, yeah. Yeah, but but Gane actually, you know, it, it it's totally circumstantial too, where he just like sees the watch drop with the photo in her. He recognizes that as part of the jewelry connect collection that she tried to flush down the toilet right before that she was killed that he had given her, uh, that she had given um, to Faro. And he goes, so that's the other guy that I've been looking for. And he was already kind of having a crisis with his wife saying that, you know, he he suspects he has that great instinct. He suspects that there's someone else. And despite the fact that the evidence isn't pointing there, not realizing that he suspects someone else because, you know, the other option is he's the murderer, which he doesn't believe. Um, But I really love the fact that, you know, he tries to do Gane tries to do this ploy where he's just like, okay. I figured out that you're the guy, you know, we know what's going on here. You know, why did you lie about this? I'm going to have to arrest you. I'm taking you in. He feigns going up to give his wife's wife some medicine and instead grabs a gun and grabs a tape recorder to get his confession that, you know, he actually knew Sylvia and comes down. And that sequence I thought was just awesome where you can see it, it's a really great moment of Faro having this, you know, heartbreaking confession to someone that he kind of views as a you know, if not a friend, at least, a you know, a very close colleague. Yeah. Where he explains, like, look, I just got swept up in love and I'm in a crazy situation where I had no idea how to defend myself that, you know, I had no way I was cornered. I have no way of knowing how to get out of this. And he thinks that he's telling it to someone who's sympathetic to him. But he also knows that Faro has this Polaroid photo that he took uh, and is proof of his relationship relationship with Sylvia and that moment where Faroe gets out of the car and he looks back and he's like oh I forgot my Polaroid and like this is proof that there's someone else who took a photo of her and you know and he looks back and Gane is just burning it and he's like why are you doing that and he was like I loved her and that moment where it just immediately clicks into him and instinctually he just pulls that gun out and just shoots him and he's dead yeah. And there's still like 30 minutes left in the movie. And I was like, holy shit, like he just straight up killed his boss. And this was one of my favorite elements because then it just becomes the the process of now, how does he prove that any of what he says just happened actually just mm-hmm. happened? The only evidence just got burned right in front of his eyes. The only other person who knows he just murdered yeah. <laughs> and, and he has passion. to take the confession tape and wipe down the car. And, you know, all of a sudden he's trying to cover up a second murder, an actual murder that he committed. And that to me, I found really intriguing. Yeah. And I love just and, all yeah. the scenes we've seen previously. Like we were discussing uh, the the one where he's arguing with Sylvia and he turns around almost like he has the gun. We saw him at the target range. We also see him yeah. in, in uh, Sylvia's apartment where uh, an alarm clock goes off and he instantly takes out his gun and shoots. Or I don't know if he shoots. But, <laughs> yeah. um, and so you see this kind of like instinct to just take it out and and he's got the skill to to do it figure in the it one shot later. as well. And and yeah, exactly. And, and just figure it out later. So I, I just love the the small scenes that we get of him showing that instinct and that impulse, really. Uh, and then it just, you know, it kind of shit hits the fan in that scene because now he he's completely on his own, even though in a sense he always was. He could have at least used some information or used Gane in a way. Now he has nothing, you know, so mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's good. 
Well, as I think, as I think uh, Josh noted, like that last half hour is incredibly bleak and incredibly yeah. grim. And I, I've, I've been I writing it, about honestly. the movie. I've been writing about the movie, and one thing that sort of struck me is the fact that even after uh, Ganey has been dispatched, uh, Faro kind of continues doing all that he can in order to evade capture. And at this yeah, point, including disfiguring wonders, himself by throwing yeah. acid in his face, like you mentioned, which is fucking insane and re- sort of reminded me of the fact from the opening where it kind of looked like he was preparing his weaponry for the day, like scientifically. And then you actually see him getting lab needles and acid and and throwing yeah. it in his face just so that when he eventually has to go into the witness interrogation uh, situation where the guy that he karate chopped will have a chance to identify him, he doesn't look remotely the same that he used to he does it just in time for that to happen and him not to be identified which is a really great you know uh again you don't know what you're it it speaks to what you were talking about before nick where you were like we don't know why he's throwing acid in his face until like 10 minutes after he throws acid in his face so there's something kind of bizarre and thrilling about just watching a character do something so violent and shocking like that and then realizing you know psychologically that there is a plan and a purpose for it later yeah, I thought he was setting yeah. it up for somebody else that was involved in the in the conspiracy or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I thought he was going to, like, inject the wife or something because she might be someone who also knew the truth. But no, totally, totally yeah. not what he does. Yeah, and it kind of plays a little to the beginning, like the intro scene, because I had the feeling when it started, because they, always, they have this ominous music that seems like it should be out of, like, Rosemary's Baby or Amityville comes back or something like too, that. Really well. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's when he's prepping the weapons and he's putting his tool belt on and he's going out to, to catch the robbers at the uh, that museum or whatever. Um, but because of the music and there's no other audio but that and his preparation and, you know, he's got all black clothes on. So he's ready to go out into the night. Um, it seems like he's up to something wrong. Um, and I just liked the kind of ambiguity there yeah the ambiguity and then how it connects to this scene later where we don't know why he's getting all of these chemicals together and then he ends up doing something just completely bizarre and and horrifying well the you know the question it begs the fact that this immediately follows his shooting of ganay is like why you know why is this guy going on with the like pretext of uh you know, maintaining uh, maintaining his innocence. Like, why is he bothering? Having had anything that makes life worth living taken away from him, yeah. having handed out his comeuppance to Ganey, and it, I think, really lands in that final shootout and the immediate aftermath of the shootout when uh, you know the police cordon uh far back from where the uh where the uh firing has been happening that uh that Faroe is just you know charged heedlessly into after he takes out these three guys always methodical he just starts stacking them up like cordwood like dragging their bodies while everybody else is taking cover because these multiply perforated uh, vehicles in the parking lot are exploding one after another and you get one shot uh, of Faro, uh head like half covered in gauze, what we can see of it horribly scarred, obviously pretty much uh, determining that he will not have a robust romantic life in the future. Um, 
and he turns while one of the cars is exploding and we get two shots um two shots of Monton where the explosion is like large wave of impact that blows his hair back you see like flaming pieces of debris flying by and he has no reaction whatsoever and you know he has yes gotten back to this place where he is a very efficient cop but it is the least like validatory or like victorious climax that you could hope for because you're just looking at a dead man right there he can still you know he can still draw a gun he can still you know get a guy dead to right so if need be he can still take out uh take out some bandits in a parking lot but this motherfucker is dead yeah, no, yeah. it's 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 completely on autopilot in his physical performance, <laughs> yeah. and it's it's really fantastic because it it mirrors, I thought, what was one of the saddest elements of of the film before we wrap up here, which was just um, the the wife of Ganey's character, because in many ways she kind of is actually meant to be more of his mirror image than Ganey was in the sense that. You know, she immediately was very procedurally minded in protecting her husband, despite the fact that she knew that her what her husband did was wrong. She immediately went, that doesn't matter. I am here to deal with the immediate fallout and consequences of what you've done, and I'm here to help you plan your way around that. And he eventually, obviously, gets killed by Faroe. And the aftermath for her element of this story I found actually incredibly upsetting because you have um, – Faroe throwing acid in his face and sitting there and watching, you know, the the televised funeral of the uh, of the commissioner, um, someone he previously thought of as a friend. And he, you know, he looks he kind of looks like in the invisible man, his get up in these scenes, which I thought was really entertaining. Um, But uh, I found this stuff just incredibly dark and interesting because there's an incredible match cut from him in his apartment alone watching the televised funeral cut to. The same shot, uh, but of the wife in her wheelchair sitting in the middle of an empty room. And you're wondering what she's doing until it cuts to the, you know, to the front so you can see her. And she is considering, like, blasting her face off with a gun, like, right there in the middle. And just quietly doing that. And even, like, one of her helpers seems to, like, come in and look at her and she pretends that that's not what she's doing. And she just has completely, because just like him. She has lost the thing that, you know, kind of would have made life worth living, kind of like as as Nick pointed out, like that was just it. You Which know, is that also was that probably was... why she didn't want him to confess in the first place, just to to keep him around. And and, you know, yeah. at, the, at the very least, they could stay married and be together every day, even if every day they're worried about a, a murder charge coming. <laughs> Yeah, and there, so there, there was something so interesting about both of these characters going through a monumental loss that, like, you know, created a void in their lives that they felt was, you know, uh, unmanageable. And he chooses to double down um, on the work and just become more of a robotic killing machine than he previously was. And she decides that she wants to kill herself, but she can't do it. And I found it so – that scene where they meet up together and mm-hmm. she says, look, I'm not going to – tattle on you i know that what he did was wrong um you know like you i think she even literally says you've disfigured yourself for no reason because i am not your enemy in this situation like i am not going to be taking you down with the information that i have i know my husband is the one who killed her um but i need your help to kill me And everyone will think that it's a suicide. You know, no one will see what's going on here, even though, you know, his partner at this point has started to suspect him and is actually watching from the sidelines. And yeah, when when she is like, 
like begging him to help her kill herself essentially. And he actually takes the, you know, the gloved hand and grabs the gun for her and shoots her. And you get the, you know, crazy reaction from his partner who was kind of watching it from the side, that stuff I just found really, really painful to watch because here's a character going through the exact same experience as him, but just doesn't have that pragmatic ability to pull the trigger like he does. And so, you know, he even helps someone else kill themselves in a way that is supposed to be, you know, relieving for them. But, you know, that thought doesn't occur to him. Instead, we get this huge explosive destructive sequence where he is like, you know, uh, his guilt has been kind of made manifest into these these giant uh, action gestures that he's about to take place in here as he retakes his place at his job. Um, and then, the, again, that ominous music kind of comes back in at the end as all we see is the the flames and the sunset over this mundane parking lot. Yeah, so really, you know... off in an ambulance. And, and you don't really yeah. know. It's like, either way, the guy's dead. You know, <laughs> whether it's yeah. inside yeah. or physically, he's he's a dead man. So it's it's and, really sad and scary, too. I mean, that that music, I feel like just brings such a horrific tone to everything uh, on top of the the sadness. Yeah, the, the great the great George Delarue, uh, perhaps best known for the score for Godard's Le Méprise, which is also used in uh, Contempt. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. this sort of haunted liturgical music that uh, that opens the film uh, exactly to the point as give uh, a sort of sinister air to proceedings um should probably move on to a bell from hell momentarily but briefly. yes since you, yeah, sure. the, since you mentioned the televised funeral my last word on police python 357 is uh, there's also a fantastic bit where pharaoh I think as he is uh, screwing his courage to the sticking point in order to uh, prepare to throw acid in his face, is watching television alone, and he's just watching, watching this uh, like footage of a insect devouring a fruit with no, with no narration whatsoever. Uh, and something, something about that, and perhaps this is why this movie stuck in my craw for so long. It's like that that's so sad, but also you know kind of desirous, just. You know, just being being alone, contemplating self mutilation while watching some nature documentary. Uh, <laughs> That's just how interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, let, let, let's enter a reductive rating round on this, which for you, Nick, is where we remove all the words and all the nuance and give the movie a rating between uh, one and five. But it's also become kind of like final statements and you know, sort of uh, any lines or scenes we maybe didn't touch on while we were there. But uh, I'm gonna go through this one a little bit fast. I think for me, this was a this was a a, a solid um, four for me. Um, I definitely was really taken to, especially being able to having already seen the big clock and being able to see what it was trying to do um, differently with kind of things that it chose to focus on. I, I really liked that. You know, it it, t- it kept the cat and mouse sort of suspense thriller elements, but um, played them really only for about 30 or 40 minutes of the film before, you know, honing in on something a little bit lonelier about how these kind of unhappy and destructive men, they kind of found this bright, pretty young thing that came into their life as an idea of an escape from it. And instead they ended up kind of adding her to the wreckage and you spend basically an hour just with the fallout of, you know, that kind of happening. And the finale includes these really sudden deaths and self-disfigurements and suicide. And there's a lot of, you know, blunt force, pragmatic sort of action and punishment about what's been left of the wake of this sort of shattered romance that I found really intriguing. And so I think that this was a really cool 
um, you know, sort of like French crime cinema update on this specific noir story. And I absolutely loved, uh, you know, some of the actual sort of design detail of it, the leather jackets and the gloves and the jeans and the revolvers and driving around the French locales and how methodically yeah, they spend the majority of this movie just like covering up murders or plotting and, you know, in sort of desperate improvised uh, thriller scenarios that they find themselves in. So all of that stuff for me was really fantastic. And it actually reminded me of one of my favorite plesiotech films, uh, Confessions of a Police Captain by uh, uh, Damiano Damiani. Yeah, which is high masterpiece. That's an incredible film. And, you know, that one focuses a little bit more on the sort of political um, elements of a fundamentally broken system. But it definitely has shared something similar about, you know, characters you know, realizing that they kind of have to manipulate and bend scenarios to their own will, but they have to do it violently, which has a lot of consequences to it. And I, I found that that in relation to the romantic elements of this film and the, the feeling of loss that you have when characters are snuffed out as easily as they are in this world, um, I found that stuff really dark. Uh, um, so, yeah, this was a four for me. Yeah, uh, four, four for me as well. Um I really thought that Montaigne was fantastic. Uh, he he has to balance a lot of different emotions. I, I love the the cat and mouse game he has to play with his own position. Like when like I was saying with that grocery store scene, him having to investigate the very thing that they called the cops on for when it's you know his problem. It's it's the thing that he committed, the crime that he committed. I just think is so uh, fun and tense. And there's a lot of that. Uh, and it just keeps stacking. You know, the, the more the deeper he goes and the more people he involves himself with, um, it just gets more intriguing. Uh, and I and I really like that. And I, I've got to check out uh, the big clock because um, I just think that this uh, this kind of more power dynamic he has being a cop um, in this situation is very interesting. And I just like to see this same story, but maybe with a, you know, a, a different position in life. I think that would yeah, d- be done, done cool. in a, a magazine magazines editing office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to see those differences, I think would be interesting. So, um, and yeah, I love the explosive finale. I think also the, the very slow atmospheric moody prep to that finale is very good. Just him looking like the invisible man watching just the discovery channel, just slowly going yeah. mad <laughs> because he's lost all the love in his life is it, it's really, really, really good stuff um and i and i think the the ominous score in the beginning and end is very suiting uh for his character um and kind of the ambiguous nature of him just going off in an ambulance but but being a dead man either way i think is very very cool so yeah uh four out of five yeah for you nick oh man now throughout my throughout my long and storied career i've always really resisted giving any kind of numerical rating to anything (laughs) the lone exception to this being on occasional tweets where I will adopt the uh, video hound golden movie retriever or receiver guide system, <laughs> which is uh, scoring via bones. And okay. that movie would be a wolf. Well, give so, us some bones. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I, think, I think I can choke back my distaste if I, <laughs> if I take on the video hound character persona. So I will give it I will give it four bones. It receives four bones. Amazing. Four bones <laughs> film. And I, I, I will not go beyond that. Awesome. Beautiful. No, awesome. Yeah, let's, uh, let, let's, let, that will uh, wrap it up, I think, here for Police Python 357. We're going to be right back, and we're going to be talking about the bell from hell. I don't trust you.
All right, we are back, and we are talking the bell from hell, uh, also known as La Campana del Inferno, as well as uh, just bell from hell or a bell from hell. The translations on this yeah. one have been a little wild. <laughs> Heck of a bell. Uh, but this is a 1973 Spanish-French horror film directed by Claudio Garin Hill. Um, and... Yeah, you might have to uh, give us some background on this one, Nick, because I, I couldn't find much about the history here. But so this guy really died by f- falling or possibly jumping from the bell tower in oh. the film on the last day of shooting. Is that right? That is correct. And it was Insane. then uh, it was then uh, brought to completion by Juan Antonio Bardem, father of Javier. Was yeah, it a suicide? I, I, or was it an accident? Here's the thing. I think I, I think in all likelihood it was an accident. Mm. As the movie was introduced to me, it was introduced as a movie where the director killed himself on set, which, of course, uh, being a morbid fellow, immediately piqued my curiosity. <laughs> um, and doing what reading up was possible it's unclear uh but there doesn't seem to be a very compelling case for suicide nevertheless having watched the film uh like this is just the work of a deeply deeply sick and unhappy human being (laughs) Uh, so oh yeah in spite of there being really no compelling evidence for the suicide theory, I choose to believe it is so. Um, <laughs> I print the legend, as they do in the West. Yes. Yeah, so this has a really interesting history where, obviously, this this car- this this man um, completed basically completed production on the film, and it was completed in post um, by uh, uh, Javier's... Is it his father or his uncle? I can't remember. Uh, who's the... Ooh, I he's the Spanish. Maybe it's either way, he's, he's the Spanish if filmmaker. I'm wrong, best. take that out. Take that out because I not he's the Spanish filmmaker. Uh, best. Look it up in any way. <laughs> but he's the Spanish filmmaker. I got it wrong. Oh no. <laughs> You but he's the Spanish filmmaker best known for his film uh, Death of a Cyclist, which is about kind of like this bougie couple who have an affair, uh, having an affair who basically commit a hit and run on a biker and leave him to die in order to cover up their affair. And the kind of sort of logistical, psychological toll that takes place after doing that. And so as a result, you have something that I, I think is in some ways a little bit amateurishly made, but is then overseen in the editing style in this very slow kind of dreamlike elliptical manner that I was really taken to and, and follows this, um, again, sort of like this sort of procedurally based mystery about this either insane or possibly driven to insanity due to gaslighting young man who was forcefully committed to an asylum by his aunt and his cousins uh, so that they could uh, steal his dead mother's money or inheritance. And uh, he essentially makes his way out of the asylum in order to play a series of disturbing and elaborate practical jokes as punishment for their treatment of him. But there is a lot of sort of 
ominous detail to this that you do wonder at a certain point if he is just going to seek full revenge and he's gonna you know go full slasher mode and actually kill his own family which he also has a strangely incestuous relationship to uh that you know kind of makes its way in in the periphery of the film in, in certain moments but i i was immediately just taken by the uh the really grim tone of this entire thing and and how we spend so much time with this guy you know slowly piecing together the history that led to this moment but in the middle of this you know uh he's in the middle of this process of getting his revenge as we're you know getting those details and the actual process of doing that is this very sort of gruesome sort of gothic uh, atmosphere that it has, as well as you know, a lot of these great. And now, was this shot in France or Spain? I couldn't quite tell because it's a co-production, right? Spain, Spain, and Spain. As okay. The co-production element, um, and I mean that's fairly typical for Spanish genre pictures of the period. But there's really not a lot of French presence outside of the leading man, Renaud Verlet. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I thought the location work they did for this was just amazing. The yeah, fog awesome. and the mountains and, you know, like the the constant backdrop of this church that's being constructed and all of these detours to these really amazing, like either there's like the gothic mansion that his family is living in, which almost has, uh, there's some peeping Tom elements thrown in there of like playing the old films up while he's, ta- you know, showing them where these kids kind of are today. There's an incredible sort of diverting sequence where he works for a day at the slaughterhouse. That oh, is yeah. just unbelievably Disgusting. horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're just, doing, I mean, like, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fellow, if you put a abattoir scene in your movie, I'm 100% on board. It's the <laughs> blood of the beasts. Uh, it's not an abattoir exactly, but Jean-Eustache's uh, Le Cochon, talking of process-oriented films, uh, Barbet Schroeder's La Maîtresse, Fassbender's In a Year of Thirteen Moons. You get into an abattoir in your movie, it's at least good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just I just couldn't believe that, you know, like right off the start, we're in the we're in the asylum and there's this kind of montage prison montage of him, you know, making his way way out. It's kind of like the opening well, I like of, that King he's of making New York, like a clay masks at first, like he's an artist and it's yes. like he's in his own studio. That's the first thing that I wrote down, just knowing nothing about the movie. I was just like, oh, OK, yeah. you know, maybe he's an artist. He's in a studio. He's working on something. And then quickly he's talking to a police officer, getting all his belongings back. Well, I mean, is, up he, photos. is he not an artist? In oh, fact? Oh, he, he is, is an artist. In a way. I shouldn't take that away from him. You're absolutely Those, cur- They're very elaborately right. constructed pranks. I'll <laughs> give him credit on that. He's really yeah. thought. True. Like the uh, like he does one where he has uh, fake eyes that are set up to yeah. make him look like he's ripping his own eyeballs out. And I was like, that is that takes detail. That takes time. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was. I mean, it, it leads it's to a, it's a, a kind really of prank you imagine Fulci playing on his so, family, but, you know, yeah, where yeah. he's just like his tearing his own eyes out in front of everyone. They're screaming and yeah. fainting. Yeah. Fulci, he's, like he, he's, he does. A, he's a bit like uh, George Clooney is purported to be on set. Just a merry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, Fulci like read his children like bedtime stories and then right before he turned around, shut the lights off and closed the door. He just did the rip my eyes balls out gag and went to bed. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's really interesting that the plot of this is a guy who has recently been let out of an asylum, perhaps too early, probably too early. <laughs> um, they even say, you know, you're out on probation. I hope you conduct yourself normally. And he just refuses to shake hands with the guy. He's like, fuck this shit. I'm 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 on my mission. Uh, he literally burns his probation notice. <laughs> like As soon as he gets out of the jail, not a moment <laughs> is wasted. <laughs> And again, the 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 basic plot elements are him returning to his family who, you know, it's it's very heavily implied, like kept him in there, used his own inheritance money, paying an exorbitant amount of money and implied to be bribing the doctors to just, you know, make drive him insane and leave him in there and, and you know, to get rid of him, essentially. And him coming back and punishing them through a series of practical jokes. And that almost sounds like a joke plot to a movie. And what's insane is that the tone of this completely sells it like i was sitting here yeah. and i was reminded of things like other things we've covered on the show like mario bava's shock was something i thought about a little bit the sort of childhood domestic countryside meets mm. this surreal horror vibe i thought Some a little of, bit of um full cheese don't torture a duckling for the way it incorporates like the mountains and hills one of, and, uh, that that like bava's a bay of blood uh michele yes. suave della morte della more these sort of the hell of provincial life uh, yes, some of the um, uh, well, especially the the architecture and the fog, but even some of the strange interactions reminded me a little bit of uh, the bird from the crystal plumage. Yeah, that that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, there's like especially though the architecture and the fog sets a real atmosphere to this film. Like every single shot has these old buildings or old statues and and uh, uh, like specifically I love when the daughters are introduced and they're introduced after he tells the guy that it, as know, a scary prank, story one of my favorite part yeah, yeah yeah and they're they're coming up almost like uh, the fog from John Carpenter like these silhouetted zombies coming up but they end up just being these these sweet girls um, these, and, are, these uh, are the daughters of the villainous uh, aunt character played by Vivica Lindfors of uh, Nick Ray's run for cover, among many other films. Uh, mm -hmm. Maribel Martin, Noria Gemino, and Christina Von Blanc. Yeah, the, the, that, that sequence is awesome because there's the guy, uh, you know, who's sitting there. I think his name is, is he's, he's Pedro, right? He's the builder, Don Pedro. Mm -hmm. So he he shows up to you know talk to the ant he's kind of like in a business associate of the ant he immediately starts fucking with him he's like he's like okay so you know like have you met my aunt because like she's fucking crazy and the, the camera like dollies in and pushes as he explains how she's gone mad because her three daughters left to go fishing and they got lost in the fog and they never returned and she makes tea anytime there is a foggy you know morning or whatever in hopes that they will come back singing their songs that they sing. And then you just get this amazing wide shot where you, you know, through the doorway where you can see the pillars and everything of the fog and the silhouettes coming through the fog as they start singing the song. And it turns out that it's just, you know, his cousins. It's literally just his cousins coming home. But the way uh, that the, the camera has been trained to kind of ingest this ghost story that he's told, it yeah. totally freaks you out as well as an audience member and this guy as he just immediately runs away thinking that, you know, he's literally been in, found himself in this creepy gothic story just because of, you know, the setup that this guy has given him. And it's really cool that the filmmaking kind of gets swept up in that as well. If I if I remember rightly, it's not uh, Don Pedro Alfredo Mayo, but one of his like associates who is. Oh, there. yeah, it could okay. be. It could be uh, whose wife uh, is played by Nicole Vesperini, uh, who is the uh, sort of ripe, ripe, neglected 
early middle-aged neighbor who our uh, protagonist has a real pining for. Um, yeah, and and plays a really mean practical joke on very her. Very mean. Oh my lord! I should I should mention also that the the screenwriter of the film uh, Santiago Monsada uh, is also the screenwriter for Baba's Hatchet for the Honeymoon and Sergio Martinez All the Colors of the Dark. So the sort of oh, shared cool. shared giallo DNA is you know very real. Yeah, yeah. That's immediately what I was. Um, actually, both of these films because I the the main thing that I thought in the previous one, obviously, there's a lot of French history and actors and things that they were pulling from. But it was funny that the film that reminded me the most was a Plesiotetsky. And then moving on to this, I was like, this has Giallo just all over it, as well as a yeah. couple elements from like, um, you know, when it gets into the is he actually going to convert into a serial killer? I did find that push and pull kind of interesting because you're again you're not sure how much of this is you know the horror element is you know him with makeup pulling gore off you know like mm -hmm. you're not sure if that if that is as far as he's going to take this or if he really is going to go into the you know it reminded me more of kind of like the 70s and 80s updates on serial killer movies when the peeping toms and psychos kind of became more of like your maniacs there was a movie i thought about a lot actually called don't go in the house i don't know if you've seen mm -hmm. that one nick yeah, yeah, yeah. where the guy has the exact same plan where he's going to get all the women into this like uh, sort of slaughterhouse basement that he set up but his deal in that is that he's obsessed with fire because of some sort of childhood trauma about burning and <laughs> and abuse and so he uh, basically just burns the women alive um, with a flamethrower and the makeup effects in that movie to pull that off are, are nuts and he spends like half of the movie then talking with charred corpses and things like that so that stuff is pretty, um, you know, like I was wondering if this movie was going to go in that direction, but it does stick a lot longer in the more giallo uh, stylization, the dream logic editing patterns and the soundscape and there sort is. of. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I should say also, and this is, I guess, pretty much implicit when you're talking about giallo, but there's a more than small dose of psycho in it in the sort of play with audience identification, the mm -hmm. introduction of this character who at first seems a, you know, very frightening loose cannon who like finishes his first day on the job at the abattoir, uh, walking off of the job saying, I've learned everything I need to know. Uh, what a line. Sort of Especially after those through, chunky uh, sawing images. corroded <laughs> arteries and whatnot. Um, but then, you know, as in uh, as in Hitchcock's film, you get this very perverse play with audience identification where we're being aligned with this very dubious individual. Um, and this, too, could be maybe one linking element with Police Python 357. And it goes so far to the point where after he has... Uh, taken his aunt, his wheelchair-bound aunt, yet another link, their wheelchair, yep. wheelchair movies, taking his wheelchair-bound aunt, Vivica Lynn. There's Lynch. a lot of connections we're finding after this. Yeah. <laughs> taking, taking her out by, um, by the, uh, what does one call that? The, uh, like, little hutches one has for bees? Oh, I'm yeah, I don't sure. know. Yeah, takes I, her out by the beekeeping setup, we'll call it. Yeah, uh, like gently mists her face with I don't know what, and leaves Something her to attract dead. the bees. You presume? <laughs> yes, one, one presumes as much, and then goes back 
And of his three cousins, one of them, the character played by Nuria Jamino, is very sweet and sympathetic and understanding towards him. And as he's coming back from to his the best of his knowledge, uh, having murdered her mother, we get this like weird POV shot where yeah. we're walking yeah. onto the porch and, you know, he eventually comes into frame. It's a really like strange and cool shot. The DP on the movie is uh, Manuel Rojas, who also has uh, some uh, some giallo credits under his belt. I love that they that they don't cut away from the POV. It's it's her staring into the camera as if it's staring into his eyes. And then he kind of just comes in from the side and she transitions that into it. So it's all in one shot. And I just yeah, I thought that that was very, very cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it was like the POV seemed to be especially after he just, you know, did what he did to the ant. It seemed like he felt the closest with this cousin. So it's kind of like we're getting his perspective of that intimacy that he <laughs> shares with her compared to everybody else, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, and, and the aunt even has to say, will you please leave your cousins alone? You know, like yeah. one of them's getting married. Stop trying to fuck your cousins essentially is what she has <laughs> to tell him. And, and he's just like, you know, well, one, only one's getting married. There's still two more. Um, yeah, it starts right away. Like as soon as they, they come to, the, yeah, so, to as the soon house, as he's fidgeting with their hair and he's making out with them, I was like, this is a strange, them. yeah. And I haven't seen like psychosexual incestuous family dynamics on this show since we talked about Andy Milligan's seeds. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's uh, a dirty oh. film. Oh yeah. Man. <laughs> um, so that, th- that was what I was thinking about because it, it was strange. I, I've heard 15 minutes have been cut from the Spanish version of this movie. We had to watch the oh, dubbed okay. version. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if the Spanish version is out there. I'm not sure if there would have been sort of like more Context. made sense of that stuff uh, because it like does just kind of like the rape, you mean? Yeah, just kind of yeah. some of that detail that kind of arises where it kind of feels like uh, it was more than just vengeance. It feels like there was something going on before that we don't really know about. Um, and he's, well, yeah, because then he goes up to the other one where he's clearly had a sexual relationship with her for a right. while and, and she's straight up just like, you know, uh, you know, uh, she's waiting for him as he comes up and then she's asking mm. about where the mother is and he's, she's like, you know, she's dead. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I, I do love that he's basically explaining to them while he's doing this, like why he's doing all of this, that he was like, you know, the way that he was treated as a strange animal and that the doctor like slowly destroyed him like a worm in his brain until there was nothing but dust and there was nothing to grow except for hatred. And he's like, yeah. you know, like th- all of this has happened before the movie has even started. So we're basically just seeing him enacting these feelings and we've been completely aligned with them uh, in ways that are, you know, again, this is supposed to be a sort of righteous catharsis for him. But, you know, the experience of actually watching it is is quite troubling um, yeah, even, he, even, and, even if he's right, <laughs> that's yeah. And that's the thing. Like the aunt has a lot of moments where, you know, she comes up with excuses, but there is a, a, a moment in the film when he says, I'll just leave and leave yeah. everything to you. Just give me my passport and it's all over. But she, you know, without, without total control and knowing where he is, what he's doing, she feels responsible and wants that inheritance. So she just keeps him in this chaos. Um, yeah, and, well, and there's also this implied sickness of the kind of sort of bougie culture that he's a part of as well, because yeah, there's also definitely. this element where like all the guys who own 
the who go to the local like hit club like there's a whole sequence where they literally just find a young schoolgirl who's walking by them as they're going out hunting and they oh, look yeah. here look at this. this is a wild duck who's not afraid of hunters and they literally like attempt to rape her she has to like get onto a rowboat uh and stay there for hours until it's nighttime or the one guy who seems like he's the nice one you know, says, come on, we won't hurt you. Like, I'll, I'll protect you. We'll get you back in and, and you're cold and there's a, a fire too. over here. And then, yeah, he turns out to also, uh, basically be a rapist as well. So, and well, so these uh, are the people he's trying to get revenge on. They are overtly kind of bad people. I love the prank yeah. where he makes that guy. I think it's that guy. Hold um, his dick at the urinal. Hold his dick he, and shake yeah, his yeah, dick. Yeah. <laughs> when he's, he's uh, like, trust himself up as though he's been in traction after a motorcycle accident, uh, <laughs> chasing the uh, top citizens uh, away from this, like, adolescent girl who they're... Uh, getting their grimy mitts all over. And then he rolls into, uh, you know, what appears to be the sort of, uh, the central dining spot of, uh, the, the bourgeois leading citizens of the town rolls in with this, uh, like, you know, fake traction truss and, uh, gets, uh, gets one of these guys, there's like thick rim glasses. I believe this is the one who is uh, appears at the aunt's house, gets him to uh, hold his dick at the urinal while this guy is uh, sort of uh, attempting desperately to uh, you know make sure that nothing will be said about the incident in the woods yesterday. And then uh, he just sort of shrugs off the uh, plaster cast and is like, <laughs> yeah, made you touch my dick. <laughs> Prank. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because yeah, that situation is, uh, you know, uh, the reason that guy he even knows about it is because he's the one who drives in with the car and actually gets the girl out of there. And like this sort of like nighttime driving scene that briefly reminded me of like the wake and fright kangaroo hunting. Like it's only lit up by like this, the headlight spotlights, essentially, as he's like driving through trying to like run them over. Oh, yeah. Um, that, so that, that was pretty cool. And yeah, there's there's just this element where like. All of the detail we're seeing is he is trying to get revenge against some very bad people. And what's so interesting is about how in tone it still just feels very ugly because you're not quite sure what this guy is capable of. Like that's the way that that slaughterhouse sequence sits in your mind and how gruesome that yeah. footage is of like the chunky blood leaking out and the skinning and the dragging and the breaking of bones and the dismembering and everything like that. That really sits in your mind as, you know, this is something he is, you know, he's learned enough. This is something that he yeah. is maybe thinking about doing to these people because he thinks right. that these people deserve this. And in some of them probably maybe do, uh, the movie sets it up that maybe that they do. Um, but instead his entire plan. And as it's revealed, especially in, in the finale is that, you know, it really was to kind of more prove a point about how disgusting this world is that it puts on this front of this natural beauty and this amazing sort of construction and architecture and these, you know, they, all of his cousins and his aunt wearing these beautiful clothes and these guys who hang out at these high society sort of, uh, uh, bars and things like that. Like they're actually going out and trying to assault little girls and, you know, so he's, he's, he's trying to, I guess, pull at the seams and reveal that, um, to all of these people, uh, via yeah. his, again, very elaborately constructed. Op apropos, apropos of the aspects of, uh, social criticism, which are quite strong and which come through quite vividly in the grim fate of our protagonist. 
Uh, in preparing to go on here, I was browsing through IMDb user reviews, as is my wall. Oh, boy. <laughs> and there's uh, a fantastic lead to one of the uh, user reviews of this film, which was something to the effect of Claudio Guerin's Bell from Hell was produced under the uh, dur during the uh, period of General Francisco Franco's dictatorship. But given... Yes. Given, given its harsh critique of Spanish society, it's unlikely that Franco went to the director who died on the last day of the shoot's funeral. And I'm like, yeah, probably he didn't. I wasn't laboring under the impression that Franco yeah. uh, went to Claudio Guerin's funeral. Um, yeah. As, as uh, regards the uh, abattoir material, I would be uh, remiss not to mention also the incredible menagerie of creatures that uh, yeah. that our protagonist keeps in his home. And this is one of the like sort of absurd details that uh, makes this film so dear to me is he comes out yeah. of this two year stint in the hospital to his mother's manorial estate that is, you know, full of fish, birds, heaven knows what else. And, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love the sort of twittering activity of these, uh, animals in the background and so many scenes, but it's also like, who's been fucking like feeding these things for the last <laughs> two years. Yeah. Yeah, I also yeah. love his uh, the, the crow that he has next to his piano or harpsichord or whatever. Organ. As he's yeah, as he's just ripping like that. Uh, that piece that he makes too. I don't know if that's original for the for the film or, or what, but it does feel, especially with the harpsichord tone, it feels very um, uh, just like a madman would write that thing. It, it it's got a very chaotic feel to it, and it's very uh, energetic yeah. and. Uh, it has a pulse, like a, a real heavy rhythm to it. It's it's very strange that that's the his his choice of song. Um, yeah, and I, I, I love the that. The composer it, it is uh, the composer is Adolfo Waltzman, who okay. also uh, gives us treats us to many renditions of Frere Jaca throughout. Yes. <laughs> uh, part of the elaborate setup of the bells role in the film. Um, yeah, all know. of the Frere Jaca stuff is is awesome because there's one part where, you, you know, you think that like people are singing it or if he's just hearing it. And there's one part where he's looking through a photo album of, you know, him and his cousins playing when they were kids and stuff like that. And at one point he gets so angry that he just slams the photo album shut and the Frere Jaca immediately just ends. So, you know, that there's like something going on in his his head with that at the moment. And there's great little moody like montages like that. Like one of my favorites is when he's playing the tape back that they clearly used as evidence to like lock him up, which makes him sound like the incestuous relationship that he was having with one of his cousins. They set it up that it was actually, you know, like, un like not consensual, even though we find out later that it was, and they use that to lock him up. And then you merge that with these, you know, again, the sort of ominous fog and sort of like the wet forest that he hangs out in where he has like a warlock friend who kind of becomes important later in the film. I, I, I have to jump in briefly because yeah. I've been like, I've been plowing through a great deal of Spanish Fanta terror. And this is a recurring element that is 
really fascinated me, which is that you so often have like some like healer or seer or uh, mysterious magician who lives in the woods outside of town. Uh, I should mention (laughs) Pedro Olia is very great. The Ancine or Ancine's Woods, uh, which also also has this figure. It's it's kind of a staple of these films. Uh, So interesting. Yeah. I had I had no idea because like this was just like a like a I wasn't sure if this was like a like a cultural thing or if it was just a strange yeah. another absurd detail they decided to put in but here because we're not sure about seems, his mental state during be, a lot of these scenes. This seems to be for a Spanish audience of the 1970s something you didn't even need to explain. Like, <laughs> we, we, all, we all know the magician who lives outside of town. But yeah, and he just you know he's he's occasionally there to help you if you ask him for help nicely, kind of deal. He even you know, ends yeah. the film. It, it, at least image wise like he, him he going does. into the dark forest and the tree as the yeah. Frere Jacques is playing and yeah, yeah they, the kids are singing the montage it's, of it's, the, it's, the church it's, tower being built yeah it's a figure it's a figure that would be equivalent to like a milkman in an American film of the 1940s <laughs> well do you know what if I saw a crime film where a milkman just showed up and uh, started killing people I would be like that makes sense to me <laughs> I got that um but yeah, I, I just love the 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 mood of it. I really do. I was really taken with, you know, even in elements where I was confused and I don't know that everything added up on a character level while I was watching it. I was still just kind of confidently moved along by how yeah. well cut together this was and how, you know, again, there's a lot of really grim and sort of dark imagery that he comes up for a lot of this i mean like when he just starts like putting together that murder dungeon and you get like the concrete and the steel and the shower heads and you know the various medical objects and everything that that he's setting up as he finally like has as we've said through the various practical jokes that he has committed like had his mother's face stung by bees so many times that she's like disfigured now um the one girl he just like dies what's that his aunt, not his mother. Yeah, his, yeah, sorry. His his aunt is the one who gets disfigured that way. The girl next door is the one where he scares her unconscious and then puts a note on her suggesting that he assaulted her while she was sleeping. And then later goes, I didn't actually do that. You know, I'm interested, but I didn't. Yeah. Like it was God, great yeah. prank. Gotcha. And I then, mean, there's such, a, there's such an odd balance of like malevolence and innocence in yeah. that Verlet performance. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, because he's always got this kind of like uh, boyish smile on his face anytime he's yeah. reacting to anything. Um, but then, well, yeah, because because it's implied doing he's these been driven things. crazy yeah. since he was a child, right? Like when he comes back, there's a great cross-cutting sequence when he's uh, attacking the the cousins eventually, where it's actually there's footage of him like running away from the aunt and uh, the film footage that they're playing Peeping Tom style inside the Gothic Mm. mansion is him playing with his cousins when they were kids as well. So like you can tell that the way he envisions this is that he is playing a series of jokes on people who he is friendly with to kind of prove a point. And they even show it to you like as the footage of him as a kid and everything like that. And but the gruesomeness and the, I guess, severity of those pranks starts getting upped and like that image, which became the poster image, is very striking of um, 
the three cousins roped up by their arm, their arms naked as he strings them up essentially like the, the cattle that he was cutting open and revealing their intestines and things like that. And there's these really uh, sharp cuts to him kind of considering doing that to them, but then imagining it happening to the cows like he saw earlier. And he, kind of can't go through with it because you know this is again meant to more scare them than it actually is to be physically done but that's just it is you're kind of left on that ambiguous ambiguous ledge with Mm -hmm. his psychology at the same time where you're kind of like is he gonna do it i don't know it's it's pretty easy he's got all the tools because it keeps ramping up right you think like okay well the and not just like we've already said the practical jokes themselves are pretty disgusting but it hasn't gotten to the point where he's hanging them naked from a slaughterhouse pole and you know he's yeah. got the he's got all the the works of the weaponry out, laid out in front of them like it's a hostel or some shit um like it, it it in that moment you just have to start thinking okay he's fully capable of this plus we have the context of the slaughterhouse and him saying i've learned all i need to learn <laughs> so it's like did you learn this to just get to the point of scaring them or have you really learned to kill here really well, learned and to the creepy the creepy monologue he gets too, right? Where he's like, in death, what happens to skin and eyes and soft, silky hair is that everything rots and disappears anyway. So like, I should just kill you and add you to the beautiful natural surroundings of our of our, of our our property. And he's like, your bodies are gonna turn into sap and the Jesus. sap will rise into pine this trees. Is, this, and- is, this is the moment when watching the film, I was like, yeah, this guy killed himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, those leaves are perhaps her fingers or her cheeks or her lips, and you'll always be facing the sea. And, you know, <laughs> meanwhile, we're seeing images of, you know, like a cow's jaw being sliced off by a butcher knife. <laughs> yeah, close up, too, and just buckets of blood coming out. Like, it, it's absolutely disgusting. In the yeah. end of the day, as we've been uh, finding these hidden affinities between these two films, I think what it boils down to is uh they're they're sort of aspirational lifestyle uh yeah like things like uh i you know, watched as, this and as, i went as, this guy as, looks like he's uh, having a as pleasant a, as a man of the 1960s would watch like a james bond movie and see all this gadgetry <laughs> his beautiful bevy of female companions i can watch police python 357 or bell from hell and, uh, <laughs> and see either this like austere you know spartan chamber that yves montand occupies or this like you know weird baroque mansion uh squirming with all manner of flora and fauna uh with uh, yeah. a harpsichord ready to go and like yeah that that's what i want that's what i want so yeah, badly these, these are the films to learn how to aspirational woo a woman. yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and and Pick up this, artist one hundred and one, right here. Yeah, this is this is like this is like paging through an Esquire magazine for me. <laughs> and it leads to this really incredible climax. I thought where he eventually is caught because he, you know, all of the unpleasantness does actually kind of overwhelm him, and he runs back to his mother in the muddy store or uh, aunt in the the muddy sort of stormy night. Yeah. And he eventually gets caught by the sisters who are the cousins who who escape. And uh, also the guy who he has kind of humiliated and has dirt on. And that guy decides that they are going to entomb him in the church, in this new church that they are putting the bells in. Where it's, this where is the bell what we was. refer to as a cask of Amontillado treatment. Okay. <laughs> the Edgar Allan Poe uh, story. Of course. 
Yes. No, I actually I did think of well, because it's funny because a lot of the Italians were also uh, doing a lot of very Poe inspired. So that was definitely where sort of like the gothic elements kind of came into me. And I thought that <laughs> it was really amazing because you get this, you know, this idea of him being entombed. And they're literally like putting the stone, literally building him up behind the wall as they're talking to him, being like, when that first bell gets rung, you are going to hang. And then he says very ominously instead that he is going to have the last laugh and he's eventually sealed behind it. And they open the church finally. And, you know, they're talking about we live in these troubled times of wars and revolutions and civil disturbances and the, the wanton killing of innocence and, you know, all of this. And in this dark times, we need to hear God more than ever. And they ring the bell. And we know that ringing the bell means that he was killed and the entire family was in there listening to it and watching this as the day. And they were going, finally, yeah, our, they used him as a know, counterweight, right? Like in the they used him as a counterweight. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, This magnificent bit of the like choir boys struggling in the bell and being incapable of doing so, where that that clack of leading citizens who we know to be uh, secret or not so secret perverts and molesters emerge emerge from the stalls. We'll take this from here, lads. Let us call on God. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and well that's what's so great is about hearing about you know when you know the when people will hear this bell they know that the voice of god will be carrying to all distant places and like that's what they're talking about as we know what this bell is like literally physically doing yeah and, and then I, they don't show the body either so just the the look of like the boys pulling on it constantly and then the four yeah. guys coming up and giving it just a little more juice to to move the counterweight it's just that the the thoughts are very dark when you watch when it. i when i was a younger man and like so many people and uh, so many people starting to learn about cinema, you're always told that like, uh, you know, subtlety was uh, a virtue. <laughs> As I've grown older, <laughs> I, li- I like so much uh, just the most like on the nose shit. Like, <laughs> yes. Says a, 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 a beautiful boy who is just uh, driven into despair by a repressive society having his neck snapped by a church bell. Like the most, <laughs> by the voice of God. Yeah, the most like just dunderheaded plane. That all of the local pedophiles have paid to get built. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Very, Incredible. Very, and, and, very, and the f- very, over, very over nuance of any kind. <laughs> yeah. And the, the final scene is of him literally transcending this death and like appearing in the house again, you know, with the he's crows. A, he's, he's a Christ. He's a Christ character. Yes. Yep. The yep. resurrection he from the tomb. I love and that I creepy blown, wax figure too. That just like, yeah, pers- which is what payoff for that opening image yes. where you're like, what the fuck was he doing there? Making a mannequin <laughs> of himself. And then, you know, he, the guy is totally convinced when he comes back that, you know, wow, this guy actually did not die. I could have sworn that we killed him, but instead, you know, here he is sitting there with his goddamn playing his fucking pipe organ song with his crows next to the fish tank. And, you know, he, uh, walks up to them and he's like, how did you get out? Like, you can't be here. This is crazy. And he's going insane. And he eventually axes him to death where he finds out that it's a mannequin and he splits the mannequins like face open. And he finds out that the tape recording was just playing his voice and he was driven into insanity. And he figures out sort of the irony of the situation that the, the last laugh was driving 
this local, you know, uh, respected, well-off uh, rapist into a form of hysterical madness that he actually achieved what was done to him essentially as a form of, of punishment. And then the dude is then killed, strangled to death inside of a fish tank, silent partner style, yes, which I thought was absolutely. funny. It's the second movie we've covered on the show where someone is I, not, I, as far as I know, not decapitated though. So not quite the same. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> But the black gloves and the recording stopping and the candles blowing out as this, you know, this forest warlock figure walks into the foggy night to Frere Jaca. It is so insane and unhinged and somehow kind of genuinely haunting uh, at the same time, especially in terms of, you know, how we have found out that at that point it has been confirmed that he probably wasn't going to kill anyone and that this was all, you know, a long form way of just driving all of these people uh, insane the same way that was done to him. And when you get that reveal, I think a lot more of the style choices start to kind of click in for you that this is meant to feel surreal and like, what the fuck yeah. am I watching? And you now, know, that gentlemen, uh, I'm going to have to hit the bricks momentarily. Uh, oh, but yeah, we could probably wrap it sure. up anyway. Before yeah. I do, uh, when I was a teenager, there was a very popular song by the uh, Long Beach band Sublime, whose frontman, Bradley Noel, I believe, had uh, died prior to uh, the band achieving enormous success. And in the music video, there's the most like corndog shit of all time, where you have like a cutaway to... Uh, and the video, of course, is shot around the missing frontman, but you have a cutaway to Bradley Noel just jamming up in the clouds. And what I'm envisaging right now is Claudio Guerin looking down, much like Bradley Noel in the uh, Santeria music video, just smiling as uh, as we pay tribute to his towering masterpiece. Hell yeah. Uh, pivoting, I think, towards the uh, reductive rating round on a bell from hell. This one, uh, for me, it's going to get a little bit closer to like the high, the very, very high three territory. I think I want to revisit this one again because yeah. I think the de the destination clarified a lot of things that I kind of found a little bit confusing while I was watching it in terms of some of the character elements. And I do wonder if also the missing 15 minutes from the Spanish cut, because we did have to watch a uh, shortened and dubbed version where the character's not named Juan, he's named john <laughs> yeah is that is so, that out there like the, if anyone the if any of our minutes? listeners know if that's out there uh please send that to us because i would love yeah. to watch that and wonder if that would clarify any kind of of the confused uh absurd elements but some of it is definitely built into it yeah um yep. and I, that stuff i i did take with i think it develops in this again this really dreamlike elliptical manner that i was really taken to while you're watching a really absurd plot of again a dude who has broken or come out of an asylum and decides that he is going to drive his entire sick perverted disgusting family and town absolutely insane via elaborate pranks essentially including getting his aunt stung by bees until she's disfigured making people think that his family is dead and that they're all ghosts making a local rich pedophile uh, shake the piss driplets off of his dick um <laughs> pretends to you know go fulci mode and rip his eyes out you know like that is functionally what you are watching and there is still an intensity to the direction and to the editing that actually makes this feel a lot scarier than that kind of, I think, sounds. It merges the slow burn, haunting, gothic Euro horror atmosphere with this really genuinely gruesome intensity and psychological 
uh, subjectivity to it that again reminded me of you know uh, closer to things like peeping Tom especially when you know he full go you know he goes full out he has like a house that Jack built style dungeon uh, that he decides he's going to string his all of his naked cousins up into and stuff like that stuff is really menacing when you do get to it and really disturbing because you're not sure how far he's willing to go and then the ending does kind of clarify for you that even that was kind of intended a little bit at least to be um, a little bit of a practical joke and again really nice looking foggy mountainside stone church kind of location work and you know there's some really solid jarring kind of flow of a broken psyche to the way this has been cut together and the very giallo italian style hysterical ending i thought was um really fantastic the only thing for me i thought was a little bit unclear was how some of the incestuous and uh elements kind of fit into all of it i thought that that kind of went a little bit unaddressed and i i do wonder if that would be clarified on on a longer cut um of the film but as is again all i was thinking about was absolute banger films watching this like you know don't torture a duckling and bava and you know seeds and even that little bit of that house with the laughing windows that we covered on the show jamie that like folk horror giallo by pupi avadi oh yeah uh, there's a lot to really uh, love about the disparity of images here between the gruesome slaughter footage and the more elemental elementals and natural kind of gothic elements. But uh, yeah, really uh, interesting film that I, I think I want to come back to. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm pretty much right there with you. I think it's a, a strong three. I just I do really like the very um, bizarre and surreal elements of it. Uh, him going between this kind of boyish innocence and just completely malicious prankster uh, is very interesting and very entertaining. Uh, I love the the architect, the gothic architecture and the fog and just the general atmosphere. Um, I do agree with you that some of the uh, incest and rape stuff. I think it's a little confusing just on a, a character level. I guess with the incest stuff, it makes more sense because I think that's what started him off um, going to the asylum. Uh, but but there's a moment, I think, where he just outright uh, sexually assaults one of the cousins and she has a very strange reaction to it. And I wasn't quite sure what it all meant in that regard. But um, the the general vibe of this this film and and generally what it's what it's going for i think is is really fantastic so yeah it's a strong three for now but i'm gonna definitely keep it and revisit it so yeah for you nick i will how say, many bones how many I bones guess is a more appropriate question. i will say it ticks a lot of boxes um <laughs> we've already discussed the abattoir element mm-hmm. uh if you die on set that's, yeah, that's that's nuts. a bone right there. Like, <laughs> uh, Howard Hawks, his brother Kenneth, in a airplane collision. Uh, Antonio Petrangeli, who was dashed against some boulders while swimming during a break in shooting. The great Antonio Petrangeli. I mean, I I, I don't want to I don't want to upset your system here, but this is this is a five bone film. Oh damn! Nice. Hell yeah! No, we love that. We we love yeah. when people do that. Yeah, especially with something just so bizarre like this. I I, I absolutely love that. I, well, I'm and underseen. I mean, but both of these films have like under a thousand logs on Letterbox. So I I really hope listeners go out and try and hunt these down. And for anyone yeah. in our Discord, we have made the films available to you in there. So uh, you have no excuses. Go back and 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 check these out because I'm very glad that Nick brought these. These were very very strange 
uh, genre films that honestly I hadn't even heard of either of them. And yeah, I'm very glad to have. So, uh, yeah, pivoting towards the end here. Thanks so much, Nick, for um, for joining us. That was a Police Python 357 as well as The Bell from Hell uh, 1973. Um, Nick, if you've got anything to plug while you're here, if you've got any screenings coming up or any writing coming up, you want to tell people about, this is usually where we have people do that. I am so glad you asked because I was going to, going to a Buffalo in and pure, uh, self-promotional commercial horror mode. No uh, need here. But, uh, on my wonderful Substack, you can read me reiterating most of the exact same observations that I've made <laughs> here about Police Python 357. And sometime in either late May or the month of June, there should be a robust selection of uh, Spanish fantasy horror films coming to the Metrograph Theater in New York City, New York, the United States of America. And is, a, is a bell from hell going to be one of them or is that one hard to find? I dearly hope. I dearly hope. Oh, you're looking for it. Okay. <laughs> We're searching high and low. Um, that would be really cool. Yeah. Other than that, I, I, you know, I think that, uh, I think that about covers it. Awesome. Yeah, no, can definitely recommend pertaining to what we've been talking about. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I definitely recommend going over to Nick Substack and, you know, he's obviously on, on Twitter as well, always firing off takes. And a lot of the time he'll mention a film and I'll watch this, that film and check it out later. So worth worth uh, keeping up with Nick and what he's doing, especially if you are into, you know, uh, films like these, because I wouldn't have seen them without him. So go check him out. Uh, for our listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time where we are going to be remembering the classics because every time we go uh, underseen films, sometimes we like to talk about some big ones. And we have a Won't Someone Please Think of the Children double feature coming up of Night of the Hunter as well as The Innocents. Uh, that's Charles Lawton and Jack Clayton. Um, we're going to have a, a lot of fun talking about those. Um, and then we are going to – and it's kind of set up. We're going kind of black and white photography mode because it's set up for – the guest episode in two weeks time where we're going to be back with friend of the pod Perry who has uh, given us a uh, pairing that only he would have come up with or <laughs> that we would let him do yes. usually it's a Japanese film and some sort of uh, horrifying uh, animation film this time we are taking a left turn and we're going to be talking about one the cremator as well as Bellatar's Wreckmeister Harmonies. Uh, I did not know that Bellatar was going to be someone we talked about on the show. It's not really Grindhouse fair, but I am trusting Perry that that double feature makes sense. And uh, <laughs> yeah, for, for whatever it may be worth, Yuri Hers is the cremator, a towering, towering chef d'oeuvre. Like if you've not watched it yet, what I have it? not watched it yet. He he told us up front. He said, I'm mostly doing this because I want to make you both watch the cremator and I think you'll both love it. So I I tend to uh, trust him in that front as a, a filmmaker of really transgressive cinema. So, yeah, I am very intrigued. And that's what you can expect on the main feed in, in two weeks time. But that being said, I think we're going to let Nick get out of here. So thanks so much uh, for listening, everyone. And keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. Stay All classy. Right. <laughs> <laughs>